1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Professor's Chat is back to talk about Ned's resignation as Hand of the King. We'll also talk about the ethics of war. What sort of nasty thing would be permissible so far as you could avert war? We will debate that. Steve and I will cover Oathkeeper. Things are really heating up in season four. I love this season. Despite last week's episode, season four really is my favorite season of the show. And finally, I will include a short excerpt of my conversation with Jen Doolittle-Wilson in my Bird's Eye View section. She has a slightly different take on Jamie's character than the conversation I've been having with Steve, so I thought I'd include that here. Without further ado, here is Philosopher. Chad Carmichael. Chad, have I told you how much I hate Pysel? <laughs> I believe you have, yeah.
2: I hate him. I don't him. remember the reason why you hate him. I don't really like him either, but...
1: I feel like he's an annoyance. I don't feel like he's really fooling anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, he can't even fool Ned. Yeah. Everyone knows that he's pretending to be a dotard, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Littlefinger says that he cares only about his own office. Mm -hmm. I hate people like that. And I don't feel like he's all that dangerous either. I feel like he's, you know, he's just annoying everyone. Yeah, there's something kind of passive and cowardly about him. He's a a coward. And I mean, some people in this book can be evil and then you can respect them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the hound is like. Okay, that, that guy's a murdering son of a bitch, but <laughs> I I absolutely want to see him traipse around the kingdom and be a murdering sure. son of a bitch. Right, sure. it deserves zero respect. Right. That's how I feel. However, I do have a question. Yeah. Is Picel right in this case? It would be a mercy to kill Danny and her progeny because it might prevent a war.
2: Yeah. Would it be a mercy? I mean, that's a weird question. Well, all right. So I don't know
1: if he says mercy, but he says, look, if we went to war and thousands of soldiers died, a lot worse than killing two people.
2: Yeah. So there's a common um, kind of discussion in in ethics and philosophy uh, where you look at an example where you you would have to do something horrible uh, as a means to a much better outcome. And I, I guess I'm with the camp that says that's in at least many examples like that. I don't know about all, but in many examples like that, it, it feels like, no, you, you can't go murdering this 14-year-old girl. Forget about the consequences. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. I'm not going to go murder a 14-year-old girl. That's Ned's um, position, right? Sure. That's Ned's position. And I think, I think, that's, not a, um, I, I think that's not an uncommon moral sensibility, right?
1: Well, I'm gonna let you finish here, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Go ahead and finish first.
2: Yeah. So, so, uh, so, for example, you had people argue this when they were thinking about, you know, dropping the nuclear bomb on Japan at the end of World War II. I think there was a philosopher, um, Elizabeth Anscombe, who argued, "Look, you just can't drop a nuclear weapon on a bunch of innocent children, for example, because there were, you know, obviously children uh, in the in the city." Um, it's just wrong. You know, you just can't do that, even if it would save lives in the long run. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's an example where people have had that intuition where I think it's maybe less clear. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough one.
1: In many ways, that example is a lot worse, but also different in the sense that you'd be killing millions of innocent people. Right. The, the rationale was that would help end the war trying to end the war.
2: Right. right. So to me, so that's, like for, that's a very for different Zeeble- example. Sometimes historians argue, you know, had had the bomb not been dropped, could the war have been brought to a conclusion with fewer casualties overall? And that, that's an interesting historical question, and, and people can argue it either way. I, yeah, I my think view that, on
1: this is that, that the war was close to an end anyway, and and dropping the right, bomb right. was was about future wars. It was not about ending war. Oh, wars. yeah,
2: yeah. So fair, fair enough. That's a good point. Uh, I think the interesting question, the interesting case philosophically sort of from a moral point of view is let's suppose somehow you knew that you would ultimately save some significant number of lives by dropping the bomb. Uh, Would that justify dropping it? And and I think some people would still say no.
1: Yeah. I would still say no.
2: Yeah. Okay. So you're one of these, you're like Ned.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is, all right. So most people, and these are not people like me, these are other people, <laughs> but most people <laughs> believe in something called just war. Like, there is such a thing as a just war. Right, sure. Like, a- Augustine famously argued for this. Right. Um, well, if you believe in, that there is such a thing as a just war, then it would be better to enter a just war mm-hmm. than assassinate you know, a 14-year-old girl. Because she's pregnant with you know a contender to the throne. Because that has not there's no just assassination right. uh, in the in the same way that there could be a just war. In other words, the people on the front lines that have you know volunteered to fight, or you know these are these are big strapping men who uh, you know they're made to fight. You know that kind of thing. That kind yeah. of rationale.
3: Yeah.
1: That, that, that's more honorable. Like what Ned says. Like look her in the eye hear her last words. see if you can sure. still go through with it. You know, he has this idea that there's an honorable way to do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So because most people believe in a just war, they'd be happy to throw off the Dothraki 30 years from now, because, you know, we are probably due for a war anyway. Yeah. Right, right. Right. You know, that kind of thing. I don't view it that way, but, um, I was curious to hear what you said, because I think Pisel does make an interesting point. Yeah. Um, You know, maybe killing two people is better than killing 10,000 people.
2: I do think there are um, actions that are simply forbidden irrespective of the consequences. I do think that. Um, So, in this case, this looks like a case like that.
1: Right. uh, For me. Okay. Um, Would you kill Hitler?
2: Uh, Well. Would you kill
1: Hitler as a a baby? As a baby. (laughs)
2: Um, no know, kind of knowing what he would do in the future,
1: <laughs> well, I'm asking because Danny's gonna burn down cities and try to take over the world that's that's basically sure. what we think will sure. happen with Danny, sure, but nobody knows that, yeah, but in retrospect, let's say Picel knew that that Danny was going to become you want a the- time travel scenario i I Time travel is a part of this story, so it's, this is not out of the realm of possibility. If, if Blood Raven were to come to Pysel, right, and say, "Hey, guess what? Um, that girl across the sea, you know, she's going to burn lots of people right. alive, lots of people right. alive, and she's going to try to take over the world, and there's going to be tens of thousands of people that die in that process. It'd be better to kill her now. Um, and then Picel brings this." information to robert maybe he should be listened to maybe is making an interesting point
2: if if someone were somehow to impart to me knowledge that that a that an infant in front of me uh that if i weren't to that if i weren't to kill this infant this infant will go on to become a a historical monster that kills millions of people
1: it's gonna be the next stalin you know
2: i so even if i knew that this is a difficult question okay so I'm not. I'm not very confident. Uh, but even if I knew that, I think I shouldn't kill that baby.
1: Well, you're a kind. You're a kind-hearted. <laughs> well, s- some people will find that outrageous, and I, I, so
2: I, I just want to recognize that it's uh, that's controversial. But I just, um, as I said before, I think there are certain things you simply are not permitted to do. And...
1: So the right thing for Chad is to befriend the baby until the baby <laughs> becomes a teenager, <laughs> and then do a. <laughs> Do an of Max and Men Lenny situation on yeah. the grown baby. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I heard. That's what I heard you say, Chad. Well, what I said was, <laughs>
2: I'm told that if I if I'm not if I don't kill this child, yeah, yeah, um, then uh, he will go on to do this. It would be sort of odd for me to to not kill him. And then act like, even though I know that having not killed him, he's going to do these things to then try to prevent him from doing those things. That would be kind of an odd Hmm. choice. Right. Since I, since I know that he's going to do them Mm because I didn't kill him. Right. That's part of the setup. So it's, it's a very weird case because how do you ever know something like that? I mean, so it's a, it's a very difficult hypothetical.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine. And, and honestly, knowing that about you, I feel a lot better with all of the times you babysat my children.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, you've got great kids, so there's no worries. (laughs) Even if I held the other view.
1: I'm going to read a synopsis of this chapter. Okay. The small council debates the merits of assassinating Daenerys, who is pregnant. Ned and Barristan try to convince Robert not to kill children. Kysel, Renly, Littlefinger, and Varys all side with Robert. After questioning Robert's honor and courage, Ned's argument escalates to defiance. When he refuses to carry out the king's decision, Robert warns him that he will find a new hand to the king. Ned resigns. Ned leaves and plans to return to Winterfell as soon as he can. He ponders again the plot against Bran news of Catelyn's capture of Tyrion, and wonders if the recent murders at King's Landing might be connected. Just as Ned is planning to leave, Littlefinger enters and promises to take him to one last brothel, the one that Jory wasn't able to find. Chad Carmichael, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Robert. Okay. He
2: is filled with rage about these Targaryens. Right, he hates them, he yeah. hates them. It's been 15 he wants to years. kill every Targaryen. N- Ned is a little taken aback. Ned seems to think at a certain point, Gosh, is he still this upset? Now, this is a little bit puzzling. I want to observe it's a little bit puzzling because Robert doesn't even want the throne
1: anymore. Yeah, well, he's a contradiction. So it's Uh, not
2: like he's feeling, oh, they'll come and take my beloved throne away. They'll take my power away. They'll take my station as the king will be threatened. That can't be what's connecting emotionally for him. He says at one point that he feels that they're like an axe over his neck. So maybe that's what it is. He just feels physically threatened by them.
1: Well, here's the thing about Robert. Okay, so Robert's a blip on the radar. There have been Targaryen kings and queens for hundreds sure. of years. Sure. He's a usurper. As long as any Targaryen is still living, any Targaryen, the narrative about his throne involves this usurping business. Sure. If all the Targaryens are gone, then that's not even a question anymore. But I don't think that that's totally what motivates him. I think that the, the key thing that motivates him is it, like deep down in his soul, he's a Targaryen killing machine. Yeah. He's like, a, he's like the Terminator and every Targaryen needs to die.
2: Yeah, here, here's what I want to say. I think that if Robert did and become the, uh, what what did you say last time? Uh, the, the king who became a hedge knight?
1: Yeah, so, yeah. If he followed
2: that fantasy and he actually did that, I think he would still hate Targaryens. I think so, too. And he would want to kill them. Still. Yeah, I think you're
1: right. I think you're right.
2: So it can't be about the throne. And it probably isn't even really that he feels threatened by them. He just has a kind of primitive hatred of these people.
1: Well, this is what war does to people, Chad. I was once in a group of of adults. And we were all on this trip together. And this guy who was probably in his 40s um, was talking about how he never understood how his father could continue to hate Korean so long after the war. Mm-hmm. And then, but he was also confessing like, but I fought in Iraq and I see that same tendency in me. Like, I, it's hard for me to stop hating the enemy. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm supposed to like be this civilian on, you know, back in the States living a normal life. Sure. There's this deep seated hatred that that's sort of been pounded into me.
3: Yeah.
1: Um so he was sort of confessing to that own thing about himself.
3: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: And it's one of these casualties of war that um I don't know if you've ever heard this term moral injury. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can you know, PTSD is sort of the damage that happens to soldiers when they come back and they, they have to deal with their, their trauma. But part of the loss is that they've done things that have injured their their own sense of morality, yeah. And so they can't unlive those things either, right? Right. And I think that that's that's part of the problem of war. And I think Robert probably has that for Targaryens in a way that maybe like someone like Barristan Selmy doesn't have, yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, it's it's really. It's, it's deep, it's core to who Robert is.
2: Right. It's funny though, because I mean, maybe I don't know exactly, maybe, I don't know, maybe we haven't even been told what all of Robert's experiences with the Targaryens. Um, maybe we haven't been given a story of that in detail. Yeah. But my, like my just vague impression is that Robert um, had this sort of epic battle with Rhaegar, Right. Right, but it's like a fight worthy of a song or something like this. It's not like it's not like some sort of hellish war war situation where he was threatened for weeks and months by hordes of Targaryens. Oh, he went um, to war. Where there were like big battles where he was yeah, fighting big, big battles. Blondies. And, I mean, he was fighting, killed a lot of blondies. Is that right? I mean, I guess that's what I'm wondering. Is Targaryens seem like they show up here and there, but you sort of, I guess I probably imagined the war being mostly between
1: like bannermen
2: of the Targaryens.
1: So interestingly enough, you know, all that we've been talking about this, I I do think he hates Targaryens. The reason why Jon Arryn and Ned didn't take the throne is that that Robert had a better claim to the throne. Mm -hmm. Because way back in the day, Baratheons intermingled with Targaryens. And so Baratheons sort of have a little bit of Targaryen blood in them. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, I don't know what to, I don't know if that 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 goes into any of his psychological makeup or not, but right, right. Um, it is interesting to note. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think Chad that Renly has designs for the throne, and I think that we've seen several hints on this. And you've been reluctant to kind of concede on this point, mm-hmm. but I want I want to make my case. I think that Renly is doing what he can to kind of undermine Robert and make alliances with the you know the, the High Garden and whatnot because I think he's thinking about it, you know what's the world going to be like when Robert's gone. Mm-hmm. In this chapter, he is very vocal about killing Danny. Right. He wants to kill Danny. He wants, he he says it should have been done long ago. Yep. And the only reason to take a hard stance on that is to protect this new Baratheon dynasty that he envisions. I don't feel like he's the kind of person that would just, I I, I think he's being self-serving. In other words, when he suggests that uh, there's no question about it, we should absolutely kill Danny. What do you think?
2: So, what I think is that I have been skeptical that Renly had designs on the throne earlier in the story. Obviously at some point he, he begins to have, I mean, certainly after Robert is gone, he wants to take the throne. Yeah. Um, I, I agree that it's plausible that, that somewhere in here, somewhere in
1: this time frame, he may have
2: begun to realize Robert's finished.
1: Yeah, and I'm arguing that the reason why he's taking the stance on Danny that he is is that yeah. he's already thinking that's my throne.
2: I mean, I don't think that that's an. Impl- I don't think that's implausible, but it, it seems very much a conjecture to me. I don't see any positive evidence for it.
1: Well, I, I failed again. <laughs> I just I, I, I know, failed. I, mean, this- I failed to. To bring just a a plain obvious truth before you and, ha- and have well, it you received. kind of veer back and forth in an irrational
2: way. Uh, <laughs> last time we talked, you were making the case that the hound uh, yeah. had brotherly love for Gregor. I
1: did not. I said he hated him. You said that he had. Uh, he hated him, but that he psychologically he he couldn't pull the trigger.
2: So that's what I meant. And now you're saying that Renly is is eager to take his brother's place on the throne. Yeah, yeah. And I, just, I mean, I think Renly definitely a better guy than than the Hound.
1: I don't know. I think he's just smarter. He's he's just he just knows how to use political weapons in the way that the Hound doesn't care Re- about. Renly,
2: oddly enough, I mean, because you don't hear a whole lot from Renly. Renly is one of the more ordinary people in the story it seems
1: to me. I think he's just... I think he knows how to fly under the radar. And I think he makes his move almost perfectly. And I, I think don't he probably Renly- would have won yeah. the War of Five Kings if not for Stannis' uh, chicanery.
2: I don't know that Renly ever does anything that's like like really alienating to me.
1: Well, he's a political animal and he, want, he thinks the more friends I have, the better for me. And I think that Martin writes him that way.
2: Uh, my feeling is that your view... That there may be some kind of ins- almost instinctive brotherly loyalty built into to, to people, in, at least in some cases. I think it's much more plausible about Renly than it is about the Hound. And I think uh, given that Renly never really does anything that's, that's very dark, it's kind of weird to conjecture that he's thinking about getting rid of his brother.
1: I think that he has designs on the throne and that's why he wants Danny out of the way.
2: I would say it's possible, but
1: I would like to think that Renly, if he
2: thought his brother was in trouble, that he would do more to try to help his brother than, than this. I mean, it would be nice if there was one character in the whole story that was not like a complete moral idiot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh No, I think you have those. You absolutely have those. Who, who did you have in mind? Um, I wouldn't consider – okay, so your your <laughs> language – I'm just going to remind you of your language. Yeah. The phrase you used was complete moral idiot. Yeah, fair enough. Okay? Yeah. So I'm going to say Jon Snow is not a complete moral idiot. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think Samuel Tarley is a complete moral idiot. Yeah. I don't think Davos is a complete moral idiot. I guess these guys don't ever cross – Don't cross lines that are completely unrelatable, right? What do you think about Rob? Do you think Rob is a complete moral idiot? No, he's a good guy. I think he's driven by vengeance. Yeah. I don't think that demonstrates moral fortitude. Yeah. Um, Well, sure. I mean, you can be flawed
2: without being a complete moral idiot. right? Okay so you've made your case there there are there are a few characters All
1: right I'll tell you who is an idiot I don't know if he's a moral idiot or not but Ned is this is the most idiotic chapter from Ned <laughs> Okay so I've I've really tried to defend Ned for as long as I can I don't think Ned's stupid but at times boy he can really be stupid And this chapter is his him at his most stupid
2: You think he is stupid to insist on this kind of high-minded approach to the Targaryen issue? I don't know what he
1: should have done. I don't know what he should have done in that conversation with Robert. What I do know for certain is that he should not have resigned Hand of the King. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, I mean, he doesn't want the job. He hates the job. I get that. He can't abide... Uh, What Robert's doing, and I can see wanting to kind of throw a grenade grenade on the table, you know, Mm -hmm. to sort of have that moral high ground. But his wife has just captured Tyrion, and he knows it. Yeah. He needs to be doing things that will allow for that situation to play out in a way that will be beneficial to Catelyn. Because by resigning the hand of the king and by making an enemy of Robert, now he's lost his best political asset yeah. against Tywin Lannister and Jamie yeah. Lannister and Cersei Lannister and the whole brood of them, right? So he should be smart enough to know that Cat is actually is in trouble. She needs help. He should be doing everything he can to use his station to get her out of that predicament. Once she's safe and sound, I think that he can be as morally high-minded as he needs to be, and he can quit if he wants to. So what you're saying
2: is that to keep your wife safe, you would sign your name on an order to murder a 14-year-old girl.
1: To keep my wife safe, I would sign my name on an order to kill the future Hitler, yes. (laughs) That wasn't the question
2: a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant.
1: Okay, so here's what I would have done. Yeah. I would have said, "Robert, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of this for you. All right? You yeah. don't you, you never have to think about Danny Targaryen ever again. I am absolutely going to take care of this. We're going to put down this rebellion before it starts. You can trust me on your best friend. Don't promise to kill the the child yet. Just exploit the trust that you've you've earned with Robert. Go help your wife figure that out get mm-hmm. get her safe and sound up in winterfell keep your office and then figure it out when you're out of the room he he's a hothead he blo- he blows up the whole situation in that moment he's unyielding yeah he knows he's crossed the line with robert he starts questioning not just his honor but his courage yeah and that with robert is a bridge too far his timing is just absolutely horrible. Just de- never just a- <laughs> delay it a little bit. Yeah. Help your wife and then figure it out later.
2: I mean, he's not I agree when people criticize Ned for not being very very good at strategy. He's not. I agree with that. But I, in this moment, I'm I I feel a little proud of him that he he sort of feels it sort of feels like he's saying, "You know what? Some things are more important than even my life." I mean I I sort of admire someone when when they have that I kind guess
1: of story. so um it doesn't help Danny at all what he does does not help Danny at all they still try to uh, assassinate her so he may win the argument but he absolutely doesn't win the relationship and that's what he needs to do in that moment he needs to win the relationship with Robert that's yeah. what's better for Danny that's what's going to be better for everyone
2: i think there's something noble about taking a stand in the way that he did what i what i would criticize him for is i don't know why He's moving so slowly after that episode. He should be moving much more quickly. He should not be talking to Littlefinger.
1: Well, um, he he actually does come to that conclusion. He's like, "Look, I normally don't take a boat, but maybe I will. Maybe I'll take the next boat out." Yeah, that's how he's thinking. And then Littlefinger comes in, and of course, he's it's it's his curiosity. He's like, "Well, I should I should see this through." Um, whatever the case is. Yeah, right. He should not be listening to Littlefinger. He should actually be getting on the boat. Yeah. But this is when it I think falls apart for Ned.
2: Well, yeah. but here's okay, here's here's a part in this chapter he says uh this is after he's left. Um and Littlefinger is announced to him, and it says Ned was half tempted to turn him away, but thought better of it. He was not free yet until he was, he must play their games.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, th- this is terrible. He should have said, "I'm not interested in talking to Littlefinger." Tell Littlefinger to go. You know, whatever. Right. And, and that would have been a much better move there. I, he he involves Littlefinger. He it's it's like Ned, you're not good at playing these people's games. What you need to do is you need to get your daughter and leave right now.
1: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, that could have worked. I and I, he, I think way, he would, would be in the situ- him, he would not be in that situation. If he hadn't resigned his office.
2: but yeah, Sure, but,
1: but he did. And I, and I admire him for taking a stand, but it's
2: time to leave at that point. And I would say to him, look, if, if, if the first boat out is like two hours from now, that's too long. You need to leave now. Now. You need to leave.
1: Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. And now he's going back to
2: the north. There's going to be war. So he's, he needs to make preparations for war.
1: Um, notable introductions in this chapter, uh, Ruse Bolton, we hear about him for the first time.
2: Oh, is that right?
1: Yeah. We hear that and Selmy fought for the Targaryens, right? hmm And then at the end of the battle, he was maimed or something. And that there was a decision to, to let him keep his life. Yeah. And Robert showed mercy, whereas Ruse decided to kill him. Or he suggested that they should kill him. The other thing we hear about for the very first time is the faceless men, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting that this introduction comes right after the Arya chapter. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's there's this question about whether or not Ned should uh, keep allowing this bravosi swordmaster to train Arya. Yeah, and then we hear about these faceless men in bravos or whatever who were sort of really expensive assassins. Right. Uh, so I think already, I think you see here, Martin's he, seeds. I think he he has this idea for where Arya is going to go. Right. Even this early. Yeah, I think that's right.
2: I got one other question for you. Okay. So Varys pretty, pretty clearly advocates for killing Daenerys. Is that what, really what he
1: wants? I don't think so. No,
2: I don't either. I guess he just saw that. Oh well, this is where the majority is, and my vote won't help if I vote against
1: them. He's very strange in this chapter in that he is—he's just told Ned in the previous chapter that he knows about the tears of lice and knows that this is what killed John Arryn, right? Yeah. And then in this chapter, he suggests using the tears of lice on this dragon queen. And Picel looks at him like horrified, right. Robert even says that you know poison is sort of a coward's weapon, so Varus is kind of playing into this role, like I want these people to think that I'm nefarious and cowardly. It's almost like he's playing up this eunuch role for them, yeah, yeah, but also maybe he wanted to see Picel's reaction. Maybe he wanted to see Pycelle's reaction. <laughs> this is the thing with Varys. You can never tell, right? It's all... It's like it's he's, a mystery. It's like he's thinking, one of my best political assets is that people don't view me as a direct threat. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a spider, you know? I crawl around. But it, really, it
2: really does sometimes feel like Varys is playing some grandmaster chess game. Yeah, it does. It I'm just not qualified to know why he moved his pawn just then.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of skullduggery happening here. Yeah. I think that Martin is trying to sort of throw us off the scent by using Varys's icky personality to, <laughs> to make us... quite At least, you know, Ned questions him and the king's going to question the honor of the suggestion. And I don't really think that Varys wants Danny dead, but in that room, he absolutely has to appear that he wants Danny dead. Yeah. That's my take on it.
2: Yeah, that seems right. That seems right. But he doesn't really want it.
1: I don't think so. No.
3: In ten days, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time to my village. They're taking your Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
4: Here are the weekly highlights coming up this week on Bald Move.
5: Apple TV is releasing a new series based on Blake Crouch's novel Dark Matter. Aaron and I are big fans of his work, so we're picking up the new show on day one. Join us this Wednesday for the preview podcast.
4: The Shogun Limited series might be over, but that doesn't mean our Shogun coverage has to end. We've got the wrap-up podcast releasing this Tuesday, where we'll consider all your feedback and final thoughts on the series. And because we like the show so much, we decided to go all the way back to 1980 to cover the first TV adaptation of the novel. Do what you can to find a copy and join us this Thursday for the first of
5: our four-part podcast in the 1980 Shogun miniseries. And finally, the latest first-run movie, The Fall Guy, features Emily Blunt and Ryan Gosling. He's a stuntman tasked with finding the star of his ex-girlfriend's movie when he suddenly goes missing. Is it a rom-com? Yes. Does that mean I'll automatically hate it? Not if the trailer lives up to its promise. Join us for the podcast on Bald Move Pulp this Thursday night.
4: You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald
1: Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. And how Steve and I cover... Oath Keeper. This is the episode where Jamie sends Brienne off to find Sansa and visits Tyrion in his cell for the first time. We see the horrible things that are happening beyond the wall at Craster's Keep and we find out that Lady Olenna is behind Joffrey's murder. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, do you remember when Michael Jordan decided that he was going to try a Hitler mustache? Yeah, I
6: mean that's a really good test to find out what kind of influence you have, right?
1: I think it's either a test or my take on it was it's the most confident anyone has ever been in the history of humankind. It's like, <laughs> right. I'm Michael Jordan. I know that you associate this mustache with Hitler, but I think I can pull it off.
6: Yeah, that's a pretty bold move that you could say I'm bigger than Hitler. You know, when the Beatles said they're bigger than Jesus, like that was controversial. <laughs> but to say that you're bigger than Hitler like that's that's even bigger right I and mean, that's even more so because everybody's like yeah I mean, like everybody for the most part with maybe the exception of Mel Gibson believes in Hitler
1: <laughs> i think Danny is the most confident she's ever been in this episode
6: yeah i yeah, i can see that
1: i think she may be the most confident anyone's ever been in the history
6: of Western. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. she she's as confident as a michael jordan michael jordan with the hitler mustache yeah so i mean she's so what does this do for because we've talked about her being sort of altruistic to some degree right or at least when it comes to the idea of freeing slaves and um you know i've kind of been in the camp that yeah i mean there's an advantage to that right i mean it's not Completely without, you know, some, some self serving quality, right?
1: Well, she definitely sees herself as a g- good guy. I don't, I mean, I think someone like Littlefinger would be like, there's no such thing as good guys. There's winners mm. and losers, and I'm going to be a winner. But I think she really looks at herself as, I'm the good guy, therefore I need to become a winner. And while that has merit, I think that there's i mean it was glaring to me that she's decided to repay torture with
6: torture right and there's no altruism there in my mind right i agree and this is this was a point of conversation cuz heather's you know more she she sees danny as being somebody who's you know she's she you know was under under a certain degree of slavery herself and so she is is hell bent on freeing slaves, and, and that's coming from a real true spot. But we did agree that you know, now that she is doing the kind of repay torture with torture, it's clouded for sure. Uh,
1: like I said, she's she's confident, she's confident that yeah. what
6: she's doing is right, right? And that's um, and that's going to be that's this is, but like, we're seeing like all these elements of weakness or or at least deficiencies from all these different kings, and I think Thailand gives us a nice. Summation of that, the episode prior, when he's asking Tommen to say what's the most important part about being a king.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that this episode has some of the best dialogue of the entire series. And I'm just thinking about the Bronn-Jamie duel. Yeah. Uh, And then that sort of jumps right to Tyrion and Jamie in jail, which is just dynamite. Yeah, great scene. It jumps to Sansa and Littlefinger and the ship, and that jumps to Olena and Marjorie, where basically Olena
6: reveals that she was behind the whole thing. Right, and uh, you know, I was kind of, sort of on the right track, I guess, with the necklace, right? <laughs> but not
1: right. So the necklace, right? So the necklace was important, and so it's sort of like Sansa, clearly unwittingly participating. Right, but if ever it came back to her, like okay, so you were wearing the necklace that had the poison, and you're telling us that you had nothing to do with it, you know that kind of thing, right? So she did kind of participate unwittingly, and part of it was through this back channel relationship with Sir Dantos, who still sucks even from the grave. And mm-hmm. you know, Elena and Littlefinger are the kind of the puppeteers here, right? Well, yeah, and and I mean, because what does Littlefinger already... do? Littlefinger shoots Dantos in the face, takes the necklace, pushes it off the side of the boat, and I think it like falls right onto Dantos's body. Yeah, clearly, Littlefinger is. I, I think he may be covering his tracks.
6: Yeah, and and that's the thing about Sansa. puts her in a position where it's like, well, what are you going to do? You're going to wrap me out. Who has more to? who who would have more of a motive in this case and it was your necklace yeah how do you want hey, so no matter what i feel she's just i mean again sansa just continues to get to get screwed over um because now she's a prisoner again i mean now she's a new prisoner in a, in a you know a different way right i mean where's yeah. what are your options
1: yeah i mean where where's he gonna where's little finger gonna take her not not home not to winterfell no he's taking her to the Erie. um which you Apparently know named. would be yeah would be uh yeah you know it's it's her aunt and uh, the eerie uh, you know her aunt's a little bit touched but uh, but <laughs> you would bit, think that yeah.
6: that'd be a little safer place than King's Landing anyway. It depends. It depends on Littlefinger's plans, right? I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> he doesn't get Sansa out of the goodness of his heart. We know this. I love this dialogue
1: between Tyrion and Jamie in the jail cell. These two, you get the sense that there's a long history there. I think these actors are doing a great job of. Feels like there's a long
6: familiarity between these two characters. Yeah, they feel like old brothers talking. Yeah,
1: and interesting that Jamie still kind of wants Tyrion to play the play along with the, you know, Joffrey's not really my son, that kind of thing. That was right, that. right. I thought that was great. I love that scene. Jon's up north. And uh, the the idea here is that John is driven by what he thinks justice looks like. And so that there's this interesting parallel between John's sense of justice and Danny's sense of justice. Mm-hmm. So John says, if Mormont was our father, then we need to go get justice for him. Danny's notion is, okay, these slavers tortured and killed these slaves. Now we're going to torture and kill the slavers. And I think that on paper, those things may look like they kind of balance out. But then the question is, is John the kind of guy that would torture someone to death?
6: Right. I don't get that sense.
1: So, yeah. So I think that there's this nuance here between the two. Like, there's certainly a parallel. Uh, There's a difference between someone who's seeking justice by way of torture. Right. And, all right. So Carl, who has a nickname, he's called Clubfoot Carl.
6: That's he's exactly. not low rent Defoe. No, he's not low rent Defoe.
1: And it seems like he he's kind of thinking, you know, Craster had a pretty good idea. He, had, I, I, I could just be the new Craster, right? And when I'm drunk, I'm gonna talk a lot of shit. <laughs> um, the I guess the uh, the rape scenes at Craster's Keep, the directors actually uh, quote unquote toned them down because oh, <laughs> nice. the original footage was was a bit much. Ah, okay. So, that's what toned Down looks like. Alright, okay. And then, finally, we see uh, the White Walkers' Daddy Daycare. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Their version of a pacifier, you turn their
6: eyes blue. Yeah, that's very sweet. I mean, it's, it's a lullaby of sorts.
1: So, a little bit more about the White Walkers here.
6: Yeah, so we get a sense that they're like because I, I guess up to this point, right? We've just been under the impression that they're kind of this roaming band of zombies.
1: We got and... the sense that okay, so a little hint that they would like to cut up body pieces of horses and humans and like mm. arrange them in in a right a little <laughs> a little depiction of the
6: Milky Way. I you know it's like there's maybe yeah, they're, they're astronomers they're... or something, but yeah, a little something, a little something for Pinterest. That was yeah right.
1: Their Pinterest work. So you got the little sense that maybe there's a culture behind this because they're creating artwork or something. And now right. we get the sense that there's, looks like these, it's kind of a ritual a stone circle, but made of ice. So suggesting some kind of religious adherence. So I don't know. I mean, we we don't have a lot to go on.
6: No, but then we see... Some you know what is this the, this this king like figure that doesn't look like your typical white walker
1: doesn't look like your typical white walker
6: that's right so the the suggestion being that there's another i mean maybe i maybe this was already explicit, and I just didn't catch it, but it suggests that what we 're seeing from these undead is is maybe. A different part of this army like it's it's an it's an acquisition much in the same way that danny's freeing the slaves and creating mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. creating followers and or uh soldiers yeah
1: so there's a lot of sort of fan theories about this guy and i mean just tons of fan theories about this guy because they haven't had really any dialogue on these people's lips so you can't really tell us a whole lot so a lot of fans went to the lore and the, the legends behind you know, trying to figure out who this guy is. And uh, that's detailed in Gods of Thrones, Steve, a chapter called Cooler Gods. So if you're interested, you can pick that up.
6: Yeah, you and your product placement. Yeah, I know. I'm just a shill. <laughs> I'm a shill for big ice.
1: <laughs> um, Jamie and Cersei... Uh, they, their relationship is not improving.
6: It's, it's complicated as Facebook might say.
1: It's a little complicated and it could be that we've seen the last of the twin It's like, I think that we're supposed to think, all right, yeah. So Jamie's just, uh, he's, he's a changed man. Like we're supposed to, I I feel like I'm supposed to have forgotten what just happened between those two.
6: And yeah, I, that, I that, just that, can't, that's what this, yeah. this, this episode I found to be more, I mean, not that I was like, Oh yeah, that Jamie guy. But I mean, this one seems to be the more, the more difficult for me to reconcile because I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel or what the intent is. Cause this is where I'm like, am I, su- I mean, are you actually supposed to be, moving towards team Jamie at some point here, because it doesn't seem like you helped with the last episode. Right.
1: Yeah. This is, uh, we're going to have to wait and see on this. Do you get the sense that Jamie and Brienne are, are falling in love?
6: Uh, I mean, we know that they've fallen into respect. I can see Brienne with Jamie. Um, and I can see Jamie thinking what he's experiencing is a, the thing that he's heard about called love.
1: Huh.
6: Interesting. I think I think Jamie's. I, I I'm gonna go. I'm I'm moving more towards the. Uh, Jamie is sort of a a sociopath, sort of beyond repair. Hmm. Um, and everything we are going to get from them at this point is kind of like any, any anything good is an impersonation.
1: Yeah, I like it. I like that a lot. Brienne gets three gifts. She gets a Valyrian steel sword. She names it Oathkeeper. She gets a new suit of armor, which is mm-hmm. which is black. Yeah. Uh, I'm like I like it. I like it. You know better than the pink dress.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it suits her. And she gets Pod. <laughs> she gets Pod. Which, by the way, I mean, <laughs> if things between her and Jamie don't work out, she may be pleasantly surprised with Pod.
1: I mean, look, Pod is probably not her equal, but just as a boy toy, I think that she... Oh, yeah. she could do way worse. <laughs> you could do worse than Pod. Okay, so this doesn't happen in the show, so I'm going to tell you a little something that happens in the books. Jamie, in the books, uh, Jamie... Commissions Brienne to go off and find these Stark Girls to kind of fulfill this oath. And she, you know, she gets the sword. Sword is made of, you know, Lannister gold and Valerian steel. And she gets this Lannister made armor. And she's off on the road. And she's looking for Arya and Sansa. And because Lady Stoneheart is out there. So Catelyn's sort of, I don't know, pet cemetery self is out there. Right, right. Her little group comes upon Brienne. And Catelyn basically says, Hey, what the hell? Like, now you're working for Jaime Lannister, and you're wearing his steel, and you're carrying his sword, and whatever happened to this oath, and Brienne's like, No, 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 you don't get it. And Catelyn basically says, Uh, Prove it by killing Jamie. And Brienne refuses. And she says, okay, prove it by killing Jamie or I will hang you. And so Brienne has to decide between killing Jamie or being hanged herself. And that's kind of the cliffhanger at the end of Mm. one of the books. And then we don't hear about her at all until the following book. Basically, Brienne goes and finds Jamie and says, hey. I found one of the Stark girls. She's in the next village. Come with me and we'll go. We'll go get her and we'll fulfill our oath. But we happen to know that both Stark girls aren't anywhere near that area. So Brienne kind of lies to Jamie and tricks him into coming with her. And the inference here is that he she is taking him to Lady Stark. Mm. Uh, But that is an inference because that's kind of where the last book ends. Oh, okay, wow, so uh, clearly, none of that happens in the show because uh
6: Catlin we've got no yeah we've, we've not we don't Catlin. Have a, so that don't have a weekend at Catlin's,
1: yeah, no weekend at Catlin's, so uh, that's that's kind of for book readers you know that's kind of a complication to their relationship that we're not going to see come to fruition, uh, interesting, yeah, yeah, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that so there was there was a Ron made some kind of reference to the fact that Tyrion, when, when Tyrion was a prisoner at the Eyrie, he demanded trial by combat, and he the first thing he did is he demanded his brother to be his champion. Mm-hmm. This kind of suggests, okay, well, Tyrion's in jail, and there's going to be a trial. What if Tyrion demands trial by combat? If this had happened a few months ago, maybe, just maybe, he would have called upon his brother. Right. And his brother would have decided, had to decide between Tyrion and Cersei or whatever. Right, right. Which he's kind of in that predicament anyway. But the fact that he has no hand means, yeah, Tyrion does not have that asset. He can't call on Jamie for trial by combat.
6: Right. No, no doubt. And who, yeah, exactly.
1: So the fact that Jamie lost a hand has not just complicated his narrative, now it's complicated Tyrion's narrative.
6: I'm into that. I think we did you
1: notice and... that Kill the Masters was written on a wall in English?
6: Ah, uh, yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> did that take you out of it? A little bit. Because <laughs> I, I, oh, I guess this scene is him going, I don't know what this says.
5: <laughs> We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to
3: enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and ball move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret,
5: Hush Hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an
3: incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, Friday,
5: Friday, June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live.
3: Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium, the thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now
5: on our Badass Fest Six page at baldmove.com slash live live.
4: We're about 10 weeks out from
5: House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire & Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are
4: hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's
5: historical tome, Fire & Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles
4: ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then.
5: Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Hey, it's time for another season of Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeney. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds Clyde as the Mr. Feeny finally makes an appearance on Why Is Mr. Feeny a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, the very special isn't your speed, we've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. Find Why Is Mr. Feeny a Car? Each Wednesday on Bald Pulp, starting April 3rd.
1: For this bird's eye view, I'd like to include this short excerpt of my conversation with Jan Doolittle-Wilson on Jamie's character arc. Jamie's such a complicated character, and so that anyone that loves to follow Jamie probably has a complicated relationship with that character, and I think Jan brings that out really well in this conversation. And I think it is somewhat of a different view than Steve's view of Jamie, which is a show-only view, so I thought I'd include that here. Here is Jan Doolittle-Wilson. I think Jamie views himself as a lion among you know sheep, yeah um, and every now and again he'll find a sheep a a sheep yeah you. I think that is the singular right <laughs> yeah <laughs> for some reason I, for some reason I got a little bit confused there um, I do think he finds a sheep interesting. And he will, um, you know, he'll sort of befriend the sheep and learn a little bit about the sheep. But at the end of the day, he's really true to his own egotism. And even though I find him a very interesting egotist, I think that that's kind of core to his character. But I do think that maybe Jamie and Tyrion are on sort of parallel story arcs, but going in different directions. Yeah. So Tyrion is heroic and we love Tyrion for his truth telling and his humor and whatnot. And then we see him descend into this, this villainous character, whereas Jamie is introduced something of a villain. And then of course we see that he's got, he's got a lot of the same complexity that Tyrion has. Um, And that becomes interesting. And so we end up sort of developing a certain kind of empathy for Jamie later in the books But that—that's my own reading of it. I don't know what—what's your take on Jamie?
0: I have so many thoughts about Jamie. If you uh, at some point when you do another Jamie <laughs> podcast, I would love to be a part of it. But um, he's actually one of my favorite characters for a lot of the reasons you just stated, and I'm—I'm I'm somewhat reluctant to tell people that Jamie's one of my favorite characters because he does horrific things, right? Uh I mean, we're introduced to him pushing a child out of a window. I mean, so when you say, oh, I love this character who pushes a child out of a window, (laughs) it makes you sound like you're this horrible person, (laughs) right? But I love him for that complexity you just described, Uh right? Any any kind of character that defies expectations, that has these multiple layers, Mm. that has both the moments of just... Incredible heroism, but also just incredible horrible choices and villainy, and and even a hint of evilness to their character. Right? Mm-hmm. I find that incredibly compelling, and it's it's part of the reason why you know George Martin is such a master storyteller. So Jamie's interesting. Um,
1: well, I think it's he's like
0: interesting from a disability theory yeah. standpoint, um, but he's also just interesting just in terms of a literary standpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that there's enough groundwork laid with jamie that you realize how much of his identity is wrapped up in that that sword hand of his
0: that sword hand yeah it's who he and is so
1: when he loses it he's still you know that he hasn't lost his self because you know he's you know he's he's more complex than the sword hand and yet um there's enough groundwork laid for that character that now you're thinking, oh, now he's so, like, he was this, he was, he was interesting, but now he's infinitely more interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Knowing now that he's lost the thing that has sort of fed his ego all those years. Yes. Um. Anyway.
0: And he doesn't turn into a... a- miraculously saintly person after he loses his hand which again from a disability standpoint is great yeah. because we don't want disability to signal some like oh now he's an angel mm-hmm. he's still deeply deeply flawed mm-hmm. after he loses his hand he just again offers us a different point of view of the world from this new vantage point and he doesn't now gain this some new identity. sort of
1: superpower because of it
0: thank god <laughs> Right. I mean, how often have we seen that? Right. So he Mm -hmm. is kind of the same person he was. He is just able to gain new insights and have new forms of knowledge Mm -hmm. because his identity has shifted so much and how people see him has shifted so much. Mm -hmm. Nobody would dare laugh at Jamie Lannister before. And suddenly he knows now what it's like to be humiliated. He knows what it's like to feel powerless. He knows what it's like to not be able to fight and defend himself. That is completely foreign to him. Until he loses that hand. And so much like Tyrion, who has had a lifetime of practice, Jamie has to come up with new strategies. I always relied on my sword hand. I don't have that anymore. How do I survive this new mm-hmm. world? And it's fascinating to see how that develops.
1: Yeah. My thanks to Jan, as always, for her perspective If you're interested in looking at Jan's book, Becoming Disabled, it's published with Lexington Books. Of course, you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Becoming Disabled, Forging a Disability View of the World. It's on the expensive side, but it's a fascinating read. And so if you're interested in thinking about disability and seeing what is going on in the academic world in this discussion, it's a great book to pick up. And that's all for me.